Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Contractor Evolution. The blistering rate of change that the world seems to be going at right now is overwhelming for even the most sophisticated, even the most current leaders. I know for me personally, I often find myself jealous in some ways of the generation my parents grew up in. And it's not to say those bygone decades didn't have problems. Of course they did. We all know that. But at least you would have had some semblance, some idea about how the world would look 10 years out. The 70s, 80s, even 90s seem lackadaisical compared to the clip we're going at now. These days, trying to forecast even five years out feels like a blind dart throw at best. And so we shrug our shoulders and go... I don't know, I, I guess we'll see. Now this has real implications on your business, obviously. And we all know that no one has a crystal ball, but when our mental image of the future is this blurry, is this opaque, this abstract, to call it difficult, to call it challenging is to say nothing at all. It's like, should I go left or should I go right? Should I invest here or there? Do I, do I buy that building or not? What if the robots take over? Like you, you get where I'm going with this. Uncertainty about the future is rampant. And that's really hard when you lead a team of talented people looking for both guidance and opportunity. This is why I'm super excited to have Seth Madison on the show today. Seth is the CEO of Future Sight Labs. They are a research institute, organizational design, and transformation partner helping category-leading brands and peak-performing leadership teams prepare for the future. He's also a renowned keynote speaker and expert on the future of work. In today's conversation, he shares his field report from the front lines of work. These are Five emerging trends that he's writing about and speaking about with some of the biggest brands in the world, including Caterpillar, Adidas, MasterCard, and Thomson Reuters. And I think we did a really great job distilling this down and speaking to how these trends will affect your contracting business. This episode was an absolute banger. Let's dive in with Seth Madison. You're listening to Contractor Evolution, where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast-growing contracting business to the next level. If you're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability, you've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school, and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. Seth, it is so good to see you, man. Welcome to Contractor Evolution. Benji, great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Can't wait to have this chat. I uh, put a little broadcast earlier in the year to our listenership and said, you know, who's who's smart? Who's happening? Who's got an interesting message? Any speakers, any writers, anyone that you guys really like? I kind of sent out a broadcast to the team, to our members, to the listeners. And I got like, I got like, I don't know, four or five hits. Like Seth Madison, we saw him at this uh, Canadian Home Builders Association event, did an yeah. unbelievable keynote. You got to get this guy on. And so, if you know, four or five months later, here we are. And uh, I'm excited to, to chit chat with you. Can you briefly at the outset here, just tell us a little bit about what you're up to with Future Sight Labs? Yeah. So, well, first of all, I'm so grateful that folks shared our information. That was a, a great event, the Canadian Home Builders Association. And that's definitely a, a portion of the clients that we get to work with. Uh, Benji, I, I actually, I grew up on a fourth generation farm in Minnesota. So father, grandfather, great grandfather, all together at the same time. And the reason I share that is because during my formative years as a child, like one of the things I saw very clearly was how each generation sort of saw the world through a really unique lens and had their own stories or a big storytelling family. And so I just sort of inherently understood this idea of generations and generational change because that's really what they represent. Each generation kind of brought a new lens, a new perspective, evolved the business. And I had a real fascination with, with generations in history. I studied business in school, came out of university, went to a management consulting firm. And when I when I was looking into the marketplace for an opportunity to start to create some thought leadership and some IP, I sort of defaulted back to my childhood of generational theory mm -hmm. and research. And I found two best-selling authors that happened to be based in Minnesota at that time, David Stillman and Lynn Lancaster were their name, some of the early thought leaders on the topic of generational shifts. They had written a bestseller called When Generations Collide, came out in the early 2000s. 
And um, I reached out to them. We started to collaborate. And it, it turned out to be this unbelievably beautiful you know, I say I apprenticed for them really because I was able to come onto their platform, step onto uh, in, and into their body of research. They were writing a new book about the millennial generation at the time. This is 2008 and 9. And um, really taught me the craft of delivering content from stage at big events or with clients. And we had an unbelievable five-year run. They retired, sold the business. And when they did, it gave me an opportunity to launch on my own. And when I did, I really wanted to evolve beyond just thinking about generations. Generations were interesting. And one of the things that I, I learned from that was particularly in studying youth. There's a lot of trends right now happening with youth. When you look at youth, Benji, Youth really give you clues about the future. Mm -hmm. In studying youth, you're, it's really kind of a way to think about the future of work and leadership in industry. And so I broadened the scope of our research to think more uh, broadly about the future of work. And, and today, uh, everything that we do really is about one thing, helping leaders and their teams prepare for the future of work. And the way that work unfolds, Benji, we do research, we write, we speak – um, you know, I spoke at the Canadian Home Builders Association, so sometimes it's an hour keynote, kind of commenting on the trends. Um, before we we jumped into our conversation, I'm preparing for a big event with the NIH here in the U.S., which is the National Health Institute, uh, where Fauci was. And not to get political, but it's it's interesting. You know, mm -hmm. They've come out of COVID, and they've got a new leadership that's coming yep. in, and we're going to be helping to facilitate a two day offsite as they think about the future of the Institute. And uh, so the work spans the gamut across industries, across professions, and uh, we're having an absolute blast doing it. Couple of things that that you just mentioned there. So the the comment about studying youth, the way I, I that really resonates with me. I've always thought of that as sort of an early indicator like a, a leading indicator, you might call it, a, a le an early KPI for what might be 10 years from now, 15 years from now, the way young people talk, the way they think, the way they interact, the, even the way they dress, what they read, what they, I mean, all this stuff is, is useful. It's useful to pay attention to because if, if you're really studying it, and you don't even need to study it that deeply, but if you just, let's just say, passively paying attention to it, there's large shifts that you can kind of see coming. And I think for a business owner whose job is to constantly be in an environment of change, uh, that, that's a good little indicator to pay attention to. The other comment about generations, just to share a little bit personally, I remember um, early on, 10 years ago, being at a, a conference somewhere and someone was talking about this idea of generational selling and they were making the case. And mm. this was the first time I had heard it. I don't even know mm. if this was necessarily cutting edge 10 years ago, but for Benji, it was the first time he'd heard it and they were explaining. So, you know, here are the historical events that baby boomers lived through. And this is the political system that they lived in. Here were the big thinkers at the time. This is going on in the economy. And then they kind of, okay, and here, here are all those things for Gen X. Here are all those things for millennials. And they were, yep. and what the case they were making was, you know, you, you need to communicate with, you, you would add value to, you would build trust with, and you would ultimately persuade and sell with these different cohorts much differently. Now, there's going to be exceptions to the rule, but in broad strokes, that was, I found that like a really profound, I was like, holy shit, this guy's totally <laughs> yes. right. When I go and yeah. sell a paint yeah. job to a baby boomer, it's all rapport. It's, it's a two hour chit chat in the lawn and they want to know your life story and they don't really actually yep. care about the details. But then you go an hour later, you're in the, you're in the front yard of a Gen X and they, they don't really care about you. They want to know hard facts. They're much more scrupulous. They're not as trusting. That's a way hard. And I was like, this makes so much sense to me. So I, anyway, just two, two comments. I, what you just said totally clicks with me. You mentioned something to this idea of the future of work. That's a very yeah. buzzy sounding idea. I've, I've heard it before. H how do you define it? Why do you think that's a, a useful kind of conceptual anchor for leaders? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And you're, you're, you're so right. I mean, COVID really launched that phrase and topic to the forefront. Right. You know, you've never seen so many articles, right? What, what's been 
interesting and helpful for my business is that I made that pivot in 2014. And it's not that no one was using the term future of work at that time, but it was not this common language that we hear today. And the way I see it is, you know, similar to generations, the, the future of work is, is just another lens to think about change. Mm. That's all it is. It's just looking at what are the trends of how the way we work is shifting, the technology that we're using is shifting, the economic and political landscape landscape, the impact that that has, the leadership skills and competencies. You know, there's fundamental aspects of leadership that have always been important, 100%. But I think we can all agree there's there's new demands, aspects, requirements of leaders today um, that's changed. And so all of that kind of falls under this umbrella of future of work. And it is broad, but it was one of the reasons why I really loved it was it gave me the freedom to kind of let my curiosity mm. guide some of our research, right? It's like I don't have to be pigeonholed into only talking about technology or only talking about generations. What do I find interesting? What do I hear? What am I hearing from the marketplace? So that, that's why we went that way. So we've got five big trends uh, that we're going to go through, and I think you'd make the case these are uh, pretty universal, pretty broad. They're going to be impacting Almost every workplace, every industry, every business size, whether we're going sort of massive, you know, national corporation level or, or small mom and pop shop, these are going to have an influence on, uh, these are going to shape the business environment. So this is a broad topic, but is there any like additional context or points or things you'd emphasize or de-emphasize for this sort of blue collar business, contractor, home service company type space, type entrepreneur? Yes, yeah, another great question. Of course, there are absolutely nuances that play out across industries. You know, you think about the trades, you think about, you know, more hands-on, blue-collar type industries. Certainly, they have confronted uh, different labor headwinds. And there's, there's just different challenges that they've had to confront of attracting talent into the space. And I think we should have that conversation. I think there's some opportunities during our chat to get into that. Um, you know, they're, they're also, you know, at, at a somewhat of a disadvantage in a world that has really moved towards flexibility and quote unquote hybrid work where people had this flexibility to work from home using tools as white collar knowledge workers. And, and we had, there's a real demand for flexibility. And yet for, you know, for many of your listeners, it's like, you got to have boots on the ground. Yeah, like yeah. We gotta, we're putting our hands on stuff, man. We can't be working remote. Yeah. So that's a unique that's a unique challenge. I think it absolutely is. Um, there'd be a portion of a business's office or leadership team or salespeople that maybe might be able to do it. Uh, might be able to do some stuff flexibly, but there's also a whole that whole kind of like the 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 people in the business who are physically doing the work it's like dude the building is right there <laughs> like yes. there's nothing remote yes. about it like yes. we're not gonna yes. i'm not gonna clean the window from an ipad yet i mean maybe that's gonna change but in in the current in the current situation you are on some level glued to the geography that you operate in and can i can i say something else about that too benji i think you know for for a, a number of your listeners for these owner operators contractors I think it's almost more challenging if a portion of your workforce has the ability to work remotely or flexibly, and then you've got a portion of the workforce that needs to be on-site or doing because of jealousy, conversations, fairness. How do you make this feel, Mm -hmm. you know, egalitarian? It's it's frustrating and challenging versus if you can make one broad stroke policy. Well, I want to get into the layers of that when we get to it. I think that's maybe point four. Uh, let's start with yeah, point. Well, so this this the first of five trends. I, I'll let you kind of read it off to us because you say it better. Sure. And let's just let's just get into it. Yeah. So you know, here's how we kind of framed this up. I I just was publishing uh, some thought leadership towards the end of this this summer in 2023 around just this the state of work, the state of leadership and uh, making five observations. And the first one is this idea that leadership matters more than ever, but a human-centered, heart-led approach is going to be required. Mm-hmm. Right? That's kind of this, this first frame. It's like the idea of leadership right now in this moment in time matters more than ever, but it's a human-centered, heart-led approach that's going to be required in order to be able to scale and grow a business and move yourself and the team through change. Human-centered, heart-led. Why don't you why don't you define those two terms and why they kind of fit into that sentence? 
Yeah. So the idea of humans, human centricity, uh, I, I've been fascinated in that phrasing, partially because I first started to see it come up with our clients and the uh, National Institute for Health is a good example of it. Like they sent me some of their briefing documents and what they're trying to instill in their people, this idea of human centered leadership. And what's interesting is with almost every single one of these clients, Benji, when I ask them, what does human centered leadership mean to you? Mm. Nobody has a universal answer. Right. In fact, sometimes they're like, I, you know, I don't know. It's a phrase that I hear people using that feels good. Right. So it's like there's, there's no definition around it. Now, when you press it, before I give a definition, I'll say you can spot it before you can spot it from a mile away. Uh, like what's an example of not being human centered or what's an example of being human centered? I would be willing to bet that some of the folks who are listening right now made difficult decisions during COVID that even when there wasn't enough work to keep everybody busy, instead of letting people go, they kept them on, they kept paying them and they found things for them to do. Even if it was literally coming over to your house and doing a project, you found a way to keep the people on. That is a human centered move. You had, you absolutely from the outside could have been like, you know what, you could have let folks go. You could have laid them off, fill in the blank. Of course, you have to protect the business, but you made a decision to put people first. What would be the opposite of that? The opposite of that, which is hilarious from a brand perspective, are what many of the big tech companies did at the end of 2022 right. and the end of 2023. Still happening. They were profitable. They, 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 had, they had some of them record years, but what happened? Oh, Google lays off 10% of their employees. So what should we do? Not because we have to, not because we're losing money, but because we need to appease the market and be competitive. And so we're, or it's an opportunity, we're going to do the same thing. So Facebook then decides to lay off 10,000 people when they didn't have to, and they were profitable. That is the opposite of a human centered move. And what's hilarious is that many of those companies throw that language around. So those are examples of it. So what does that actually mean? It means people, people are not simply a means to an end. If you're a human centered leader, you you, you accomplish your goals with people, not through people. Uh, this idea of needing to appease the market really jumps out to me because um, one thing that I think is absolutely a feather in the cap of a small business owner in this space, it, in 99.9% .9 of examples, they're not VC-backed, they're not publicly traded, there's no share price that they're concerned about. There aren't shareholders that they need to keep happy. They might have a small board of directors that's more of an advisory board, but they're not worried about getting canned because their quarterly earnings went down. They're if there's actually a node in the system of our modern economy where, where being human-centered, as you talk through it there, is available to a business owner, it's this one. You actually have the freedom to do it. That, the, the Mark Zuckerberg and, and uh, you know, you can go through the list, Bezos and sort of like, you know, their their hands are a little more tied. You'd probably make the case that they didn't have to do that. And I would agree with you, but we don't even have to have the conversation about like, oh, like, well, well, like, you know, what are the shareholders going to think? I'm worried about this annual meeting where I have to go say our earnings are down. Like that's not even a, a thought in our mind. So we, we have this option available to us in a way that I think is unique. A hundred percent, thousand percent spot on. You know, the only thing I would say in that I challenge leaders who are operating in larger organizations is I believe that the marketplace rewards leaders who are principled and who are rooted in their values. And so if you're going to make big statements about caring about the communities that you operate in and the world at large, follow through on that. And even if that means to your shareholders, you know, the return on this quarter is going to be down a little bit, we made a decision in the best interest of humanity. And long term, I think that pays off in the marketplace. And I think there's lessons to be learned for small operators too in that. That, sh that shows up for all of us. Now, here's a question that's absolutely going to be on the mind of a listener. And it's uh, it's an important one. It's like, okay, I hear you, Seth. Uh, I want to do that. I want to be that. 
But I also don't want to be seen as a bleeding heart uh, business owner. And you, know, you see these, you see these, you see these owner operators out there in the small business world who just have a heart of gold and and mean the best, but are on some level a little too soft and maybe like lack that edge to make hard decisions, hold accountability. Um, what have you. And so for someone listening who's going, okay, human-centered heart, heart-led, that's sounding a little bit uh a little bit, a little bit soft, a little bit woo-woo. Can we cut, can yep. we maybe add a, a, a add a, another bullet point to this, which is how do we do that while maintaining a super high standard of excellence, holding people accountable to the commitments that they make and really dri- still driving a high performance business entity? Yeah, it's a, it's a freaking great question, Benji. And I think first and foremost is being able to just acknowledge that these things can exist simultaneously. They're not freaking mutually yeah. excu- exclusive, right? And so for anybody who maybe who's tuned in, who, who, who played sports, especially at maybe a higher level, a collegiate level, semi-pro level, you know, many of us, myself included, I was blessed to play for a number of coaches that there is not a doubt in my mind that they loved their players. I felt loved, but at the same time, they absolutely demanded excellence out of us. So when we when I say heart led, the human centricity, like what is it about? It's about number one, it's about seeing yourself in another, right? This empathy of like I can, it, this is another human being. I I can see their challenges, their frustrations, their family stuff. I see myself in them. Number one, number two, it's about this idea of helping those people see more in themselves than they likely see in themselves. And I see this a lot in the trades, right? I. I, I so between my junior year and of high school and junior year of college, I actually uh, was a framer. We framed houses. Uh, I initially went to college for construction management. I left that part of the story out. And so I worked on framing crews. I shingled houses. I sided homes, et cetera. The reason I bring that up is because I've seen the, my fellow colleagues, laborers who are in that space. And a lot of times these were kids who um, they didn't have a lot of options, there weren't a lot of other job opportunities for them. They found their way into these, these, these opportunities. Most of the people in their life told them they wouldn't amount to much. Mm-hmm. That I think exists with our current listener group more than maybe some other industries. And so that creates an opportunity for us as leaders. You may have someone standing in front of you who doesn't believe in themselves that much because no one's ever told them that they could be something more. And so helping them see more in themselves than they see in themselves, that's human-centered. That's heart-led. That's demanding them. And then putting, you know, there's real uh, consequences. You don't show up on time. You don't follow through. You don't execute. Like, there's consequences. Maybe you got to let people go. You, you like you can do both. Mm. But to, to, to systematize or operationalize it, and Benji, I know you know this and you teach this, is like it has to exist in the culture you're creating. Mm-hmm. And the culture is about values and behaviors and standards that you talk about, that get rewarded, that get celebrated. It becomes common language for everyone. So we all know the rules of the game that we're playing. If you think of it like a spectrum and it it truly is a spectrum this isn't a binary you're this you're that but one end of the spectrum is like let's i'm just going to make this up it's like hardened tyrant and then the other end of the spectrum is like soft bleeding heart who's overly empathetic there's like about a hundred points in the middle there. It's actually quite a large middle that you can occupy and you want to find yeah. your own little spot, but you're making the case that you absolutely can do both and should do both. You're also making the case that you need to do both, which I want to ask you about in a second. I just, another quick comment is the, um, the, Going back to this idea of, of okay, on one hand, these businesses are going to have a hard time with this hybrid remote, uh, hybrid uh, model, and we're, we're needing to sort of like make new work setups for, for, for the modern worker because they want this and they demand this and they can get it elsewhere. It's challenging for that. What it's really good for is what you're talking about right now because we have the proximity. I mean, do you know how many of my friends, how many people who are not in blue collar businesses are on a freaking laptop 300 days a year and do not 100%. see do not see the people that report to them, do not see the people that they report to outside of a monthly team huddle and then maybe one sort of booze-filled hurrah a year. Like it's not th- that they they lack the closeness and I actually do think 
because uh, I've done a lot of Zoom and I've done a lot of in-person. I know I know the, the good and the bad of both. I really think that in-person time matters. And that's that's another feather in the cap that that these businesses have. You're going to see people on site. You're going to see people in the office. Uh, there's going to be weeks where you're busy and you see them less, but you are operating close to each other. So I just think that's another thing to maybe uh, – take stock in and understand is an asset for you, the contractor who's listening to this, where it's like, if you want to be heart cent- uh, human centered and heart led, this is actually easy for you than a big tech company or someone else. But, but I totally agree, Benji. I just would put one caveat and that is it puts more pressure on the experiences that you create for your teams then, right? Like if you're going to put all your eggs in that basket, it better be a freaking great experience right. because that's what you have right. as your value problem. Right, right. Now you say this is required in the future. I, here's how I'd frame the question. And looking at this sort of in a the next 10, 15 years frame, what's going to happen to the businesses who don't adopt this? Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm partially prone to hyperbole, so I can throw statements out there like that. But I do, it does come from a place of belief. What's going to happen is they're going to struggle more and more to get the best talent. It's just like, it's just a reality. And we're going to talk about the fact that it's already going to be hard anyways. When people have choice and people get a taste of what it's like to work for a great leader, your expectations for the next person that you work for are in that same place. Can you outline some of the skills that would be required for someone to adopt this philosophy to their leadership? Are there there a handful of things like, hey, you got to get good at X, Y, and Z? Yeah. Great, great, great question. So one of the first ones that comes to mind, and uh, I know this is a big area for you, is just coaching as a competency. Like the leader is a coach and really seeing yourself as that. So it's like, you think about what do the best coaches do for the people that they work with? And I'm, I'm sure you've worked with coaches. I've had some great coaches in my life. And I don't mean sports, I mean like high performance professional coaches. The first is that the best coaches, it's not that they have all of the answers or that they give you all the answers. The best coaches are the ones who ask you the best questions. Mm-hmm. The best questions that lead you to your own internal wisdom knowledge perspective, that, that self-reflection, that self-awareness. So what are, what are, what are practical skills? All right, coaching as a competency. What makes a great coach? You know, presence, effective open-ended questions, compassion, helping people, belief, working on their belief lid, helping them see more in themselves, caring about and understanding. And I think this is a huge one for all the leaders tuned in. Understanding, knowing, and caring about their individual, personal, professional, and financial goals. Mm. Hey, people come to work for us and we think like their whole goal is to help us scale and grow our business so we can have an It's exit. not. It's not. They care about themselves. And so as a leader, the more you can care about helping your people get what they want, they will help you get what you want if you do that for them. Should we move on to two? Are there any, any other skills let's that you it. would? Let's, yeah, let's, let's, let's move in. Let's go to, let's go okay, to two. Okay, I'm going to read this one because so, I want to read this one because it's so spicy. <laughs> okay, you read it. Here, hyperbole. In, this, in the face of economic uncertainty, employees maintain their power as we enter, here it is, the forever labor shortage. Boom. So what's the forever labor shortage? Yeah, okay, so the forever, th- this is not a term that I coined. This is a, it doesn't have mass appeal, but it is, it is, uh, appeared on an, in a number of articles, a number of pieces, pieces of research over the past few months. With that being said, what does it mean? Uh, in short, it literally, it literally means we will never have enough people to fill the number of open positions we have, period. Unless we see some dramatic with the next generation of Gen Alpha, if they decide to start having four, five, six kids, which I highly doubt is going to happen, we are always going to have more open positions than there are people to fill them across industries. I think, and there's a couple of factors. Okay, you want to know what those factors are? Should we talk about what I was going to say? Just as a good little, a good little framing is. I think most listeners feel that already feel that on an intuitive level. Like they might there might be a voice in their head almost using that term. God, this labor shortage just feels like it's going to last forever. Like it's literally already there. They might yeah. not have and this is where I'd be really curious to get your take on this. You mentioned some research. 
they might not have the demographic stats to sort of uh, underpin that or back it up on a scientific or mathematical uh, or research level. So what have you learned to maybe just substantiate that claim? Because I know it to be true, but I, I'd love to know yeah. some of the facts that drive it. Yeah, so there, I, I see it. I see there as being five factors, and there's a couple of them that we can do some things about, and some that we can't. Right. So, so the number one, the first factor is just simple reality from a generational perspective. Our baby boomers are retiring. Baby boomers, the largest generation in history. Depending upon who you're talking to, where that number exactly falls, but they're the largest. You know, demographers say we've been, and we've been saying this for 10, 15 years now. Baby boomers, ten thousand baby boomers turn sixty-five every single day. Wow. And that's been said for years. So we've got this massive group that's retiring, and I'd be willing to bet a, a number of our listeners, like you're feeling that. you got a couple of key leaders, people have been with you for a long time. On the flip side, the next generation that's entering the workforce, Gen Z, is substantially smaller. Again, and you know this, you look at the research, trying to pin down the exact number of a generation. Some people say 76 million, some people say 70 million. It's hard. Well, how I look at it is like boomers are bigger. Xers were really small. Millennials and Gen Z are showing to be very similar in size, but smaller than baby boomers. There's not enough. But here's the, 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 the third factor. So we got big boomers leaving. We got a smaller generation coming behind. Here's something that often gets overlooked and not talked about. Starting to be talked about a little bit more down here in the U.S., the economic underperformance of young men between the ages of 18 and 34. Yeah, yeah. There's this they guy, uh, Nicholas Eberstadt, who's what's it's men without work. And it's all, I, I've, I've messaged, I've, I've been trying to get him on. It's all about the number of young, uh, able-bodied, uh, sort of work-ready men who are not actually engaged, not only engaged, they're not even looking they're not looking. Yeah. That's the statement. They're they're not only unemployed, but they are not looking. Bizarre. It's unbelievable. And so, you know, there's a larger con we, I mean, you're gonna do a whole session on like why is that? What's happened to this group? Right. But we see it in the numbers. It's like they're the graduate graduation rates are less than the girls, their grades are less than the girls, their opportunities in the fields that they're entering into now are going down and, and they're feeling a bit lost. Mm -hmm. And I think there's an op, you know, there's a crisis for men right now of a crisis of identity. Mm -hmm. Is it okay to be a masculine man? What does that actually mean? It's toxic masculinity over over here. And so then we, we flocked to, and I'm, you know, personally, I'm a fan of Jordan Peterson. Some people think he's, he's horrible, but like, yeah. He, 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 he created it. He spoke to a whole generation of men that felt like that to take responsibility. Totally. And so there is something happening in the ether around that. And I think for the trades, for, for, for an occupation that's dominated by men, I think there's a unique opportunity in conversation in Benji. I think you're gonna, you're gonna play a key role in this too, to facilitate some of these conversations. How do we help our fellow men find purpose and passion and, and usefulness mm -hmm. and their own sort of heroic sense of masculinity in, in some of these fields I think we have an opportunity to speak into their hearts. Somebody, someone asked me this the other day in in uh, in a webinar that we were doing, a big webinar we did a few weeks ago, and it was a very similar question: how do I how do I motivate my my workforce that seems a little lethargic? I don't I don't think it was a particularly sort of male focused question, but I I'm a guy and sure. I and I I couldn't help but answer it from sort of a male perspective. And we have talked about this in other podcasts, but. Um, and this is a whole other episode. So this is a quick tangent, and then we'll get back to the trends. But on that note, I think I think that there's a, an intelligent leader over the next 10 years, if this is resonating with you and you want to do something about it, we need to make trades cool again. We need to make hands-on work, sweaty at the end of the day, tool belt on type, that rugged uh, difficult, challenging, rigorous type of work has really had a bad two decades where its brand is concerned. And I can't quite pinpoint why, but it, it is what it is. And I think that, I think that the way that you talk about this with your team, the way that you celebrate it with your team, the way that you make Instagram posts about your technician who did an amazing job and you call them out and you write a caption and you say why they're great 
we could get super philosophical. We could like literally come up with a list of ways to do this. I mean, that's a great, a great idea for another episode. But I really think uh, if you can make the trades, make construction cool again, there's going to be this groundswell of people, uh, men that we're talking about who just go, Actually, I, I love like building and I'm like, I'm kind of tired of acting like I don't like I want to put a freaking tool belt on and go do this. So quick tangent on that, but it's a really, really interesting point. Yeah. You, you feel the same way? I could not agree more. And I'm glad, you know, I'm glad you referenced, you know, even just saying something like leveraging Instagram, you have to use the tools and be in the channels where people are today. And in particular, where the next generation of the trades are living right now. Like I think from a from a recruiting standpoint to overcome this, it's going to take a couple of factors. Number one, you have to create exceptional experiences for the people that you do have so that they stay in their stickiness and they tell people. Mm. And the, and you want to create a, re, a story for someone to tell all of their friends is to help a person accomplish the goals that they've set out for in their life, whether that's build a cabin, buy a boat, freaking help your mm -hmm. family do something, start a conversation. That's one. Two, the other thing, Benji, is freaking boots on the ground, man. Mm -hmm. Like everybody who's listening right now, like the only way this turns around is to get deep into our communities. Right. I mean, into the elementary schools, right? Building relationships with teachers. We're not going to be able to wave a wand and change this public persona of these industries magically. It's going to take being in our communities, building the relationships, and then using these new technologies, like you referenced Instagram, to help spread that message. You know, I don't know if you saw, there was a story of a, a female truck driver who got arrested in Dubai. She's called the sassy t truck driver on TikTok. And uh, I'm, I'm not like advocating to like follow her, but what's interesting is she, a, a black female truck driver but she started a TikTok channel and like creating buzz right. around the fact that like this is a great profession and she's in the channel where people are. Yeah. Now it becomes possible. Now people see it. Yeah. I, I'm actually quite – there's a lot about the current climate and economy and workforce and all this stuff that I sadly am very pessimistic about. The point I just made about make it cool again, I'm actually very optimistic about. I'm like like I, I bet money on it. I really think the pendulum is going to swing back and I'm boring my listeners because I've said this in other episodes. But – but the the sort of white collar, you know, thoughtosphere, LinkedIn profile worker, um, I know a lot of them guys, they're pretty underfulfilled. I'm a customer support manager they're, they're at a mid-level thingy. Uh, we can we can throw AI into this equation totally. too. Like AI is gonna transform white collar work, knowledge work, but it's going to create new opportunities in other spaces where technology can never do. So I think uh, if I had to bet money on it, I think it's going to kind of correct a little bit here, but uh, don't rest on your laurels. You as the business owner have a massive, I'd actually say the biggest role to play in doing this because our educators probably aren't going to do it. Our government definitely isn't going to do it. I think, unfortunately, fortunately, whatever, this is going to fall on the backs of, of, of small business to really help uh, correct this. Now, I, you mentioned something about recruitment and using the tools. Is there anything else on the tactical level here? that you think is useful um, when it comes to recruitment, talent acquisition, hiring? How, do, yeah. how, does a, how does a growth oriented business owner who has ambitions of growing an eight figure business and beyond still yeah. do that in the forever later labor shortage? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to make it sound overly simplistic, but it is really mastering those fundamentals of the greatest recruiting thing you can do is to create an exceptional culture and experience for the people that you have. I, it just period full freaking stop. We can't like, we're looking for like technology solutions and other things. And, and yet we keep creating a terrible work environment for our people. It, it's not going to work. And then it, it, you know, of course you got to be using all of the new technology that's available from a recruiting standpoint, L leverage recruiting sources. AI is playing a big factor in that area right now around job descriptions, sourcing candidates, helping you find people, but you can't beat having deep relationships again at a local level 
if you're not at your elementary school, if you're not Mm -hmm. at the junior high, Mm -hmm. if you're not at the high school building relationships with those teachers and those students and doing demonstrations, we had a client who pulled one of the, who, who rigged out this, this, uh, uh, 18 wheeler that had like equipment and stuff for the kids to play with, pulled it up to the school, got the shop kids out, opened up the doors. People were getting to make stuff like there's a renaissance around maker culture. Yeah. But you got to speak to the kids and use their language. Yeah, hundred percent agree. I love that. I really, really, and I, and I, um, yeah. We should. I could go. So I could be very long winded about this, but I won't. I think the key takeaways on this on this second trend before we move to the third is this labor shortage ain't going anywhere quickly. So don't hold your breath. Uh, but it is a very solvable problem. And if this is something that you invest in, and we've seen this hundreds of times in the Breakthrough Academy universe, this yep. you are, I would make the case, you are six months to a year away from having more applicants than you can actually you can actually hire if this is something you put intention to and really focus on. This is not some decade-long problem that you – there's some big, large-scale stuff that's going on broadly, but in your small business, in your little community, you're way more nimble than the statisticians make it seem. You can do something about this quite quickly. Totally Let's agree. move on to three. Despite the ongoing demands for employees to return, the office as we know it is dead. Okay. Office as we know it is dead. <laughs> people are coming back, but man, uh, if if you're having people come back to the same stale, stagnant office setting that we were operating in pre-COVID, I, I think it's going to create some drag on your recruiting. And I know I'm not alone on that. You know, we'll, I think this, you know, when, whenever this airs, the, the date Fortune ran a big, big article segment on August 21st. And the title they used was the, the old office is going extinct. So whether we say it's dead, whether we say it's going extinct, the idea is that we have to sort of reimagine how we're going to use our physical space. And I think for, you know, even all of our listeners where you've got a portion of your workforce that's, you know, whether they're doing contracts, they're doing accounts receivable, like in office sales folks, you got a couple people coming in. You think about the type of work that we would want to do together in a physical office versus what people could be doing at home. There's certain types of work that are just better structured to be together. And Benji, you mentioned it earlier of like the connection and collaboration element. Like, I don't care how great these tools are. There is still something about being physically together. And so if I'm going to ask my people to come into the office, I want to be really intentional about how we use that physical space when we're together. If you come into the office, I don't really want you in there doing head down, focused, knockout work that you could be doing at home. If I brought you in, I want to be using this time for creation, collaboration, connection, or building and supporting culture. Huh. So – it's funny you say that. Uh, I have a few buddies in commercial real estate, and they would say the exact same thing. They are saying the exact same thing right now. It's very hard to do deals right now. Uh, it is a buyer's market for sure, and it's a lot slower than it was. For, I mean, orders of magnitude slower than it was five years ago. Now, are you – okay, but just to really boil this down, are you saying that yeah. investing in space, uh, a building, a unit in a building, whatever – is pointless or are you saying, hey, that's a, that still has some value, but the use cases for it are very, very different and the way that we deploy that space and utilize it with the team is different. What's what's kind of your answer to that? It's it's that's it's the second one. You know, again, I, I'm prone to hyperbole. The office as we know it, the office as it has been, the office as this sort of standard is dead moving forward. Physical space, I think, is gonna be incredibly important. But I have to rethink, reimagine, redesign and be very intentional, right? Like many of us, we just never even stop to think about it. Like how do I actually want to – like we just have an office and people come in and get their freaking work done. Like I don't put any more thought into it than that versus now being like if I'm going to let that space go or sell that building or, or lease a new space – what do I want us to do in it yeah. to maximize the employee experience? What, and the, I think one of the best things leaders could do is like invite your team into this process. Like if we want to get really tangible about it, it's like have this conversation in dialogue with your people. Do you know how they like to do their best work? You know, if you're offering a little bit of flexibility, you know, what do they do great at home with? Yeah. How, do, what would we do if we were, if we came into the office? What would you want to do? Yeah. Start to. 
facilitate that. Now we're in that dialogue. I just uh, I just had a visit. I just paid a visit to one of our high, high performance builders here in BC a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I spent a couple of days with them. We were shooting some content, and uh, he he's got a he's got a really nice building in his town. And I was asking him about this, and his thing was like, you know, this is a fairly fluid situation. I'm kind of listening to what my people want right now. I want them in the office for three days. And and the and the other two are kind of they're not slush days, but it's like you you can do it from uh, an, uh, your your home office. You can do it from a coffee shop. You can do it from the pub down the road. I don't care. It seems to be the right mix for us. The other thing that he's done is he's he's invested in a really nice boardroom with a TV and a centralized place for when uh, designer needs to meet with the estimator, needs to meet with the project manager, and the client comes in too. He's got a really nice space for that, and he's not super rigid about Monday to Friday, eight to four, and you're going to do every single part of your thing. The other thing too, that I I think is very interesting. I've thought about a lot lately is you might feel this way too, Seth. I, this might just be a personal kind of idiosyncratic thing, but I I think other people can relate to this. I've noticed that I have like different, I can do, I, I do different types of work in different places a lot better. Like my office is for like sales, uh, large scale webinars. It's for important meetings, but I hate, and I can't for the life of me do administrative Asana task completion, inbox clear out stuff there. I just can't. I'm like the energy, the energy is fouled up with all the selling that I've done here. I got to go to my favorite coffee shop and get my macchiato and sit down and do two hours there. And then I can come back and finish up. Like it's just, there's, I think that there's actually some there, there, there's some there's some utility in thinking about where you do your best kinds of work, uh, and you want to watch your drive time, and you can lose an hour chit chatting, and you like you know you you got to be intelligent about this, but give yourself a little bit of flex, and give your team a little bit of flex, and going back to what you said earlier, the package, the value prop that you're giving, needs to be extremely compelling if you have any chance at this. That's a pretty easy way to do it, wouldn't you think? I love I love the framing you just had there of where do I do my best work. Like as soon as as you're describing that, I'm thinking about like if you were on my team, how insightful that is for me to know that about you and help you structure and create enough flexibility, give you enough autonomy, give you enough respect and and, and opportunity to execute an environment where you can lean into, you know, you go to the coffee shop, get your macchiato, knock out that work. I'm not sweating whether or not you're in the office. You mentioned, you know, two days away. I can tell you looking at the research and the person that I look to the closest around work from home hybrid work right now is, is Nick Bloom, Nicholas Mm. Bloom out of Stanford. Unbelievable. I mean, if you want to know like finger on the pulse day to day, he and they have it. And what they're finding is that the magic number really is kind of this two to three days a week in the office. Um, fully remote, you know, for this idea of productivity, has productivity gone down? What's happening? Fully remote folks, we, we're definitely seeing a dip in productivity. Okay, I had someone on the other day who was saying the opposite, and I really, I dis, I really disagreed with them. I was like, I don't think... Yeah, I'm just not sure the level what, of. What, do you remember what they were saying? Were they saying they, that remote was more productive? They or were basically saying COVID has introduced the fully remote model, and it turns out people are way more productive from home, and this is how it's going to be for the future moving forward. And I was like, I don't know, man. Like, I don't. I think that the level of discipline required to be super productive at home all the time, you're kind of looking at someone who's almost OCD level of just like you know, priority management and block schedule and they, and they're able to like put their blinders on. I, I'm not, I am absolutely like I work remotely, but we have, there's a lot of in-person time. We do these work sprints where we get together uh, and it's very well structured, but I, I am abundantly aware of some of the drag and some of the downside of fully, fully remote. And, and this is maybe not a super relevant conversation for our listeners because there's only maybe three to five to maybe 10 people in the organizations that we're talking about who even have this option. Like, like, like we said earlier, most people are going to be on site physically in reality. But I, I, I do, I really think this sort of like, Oh, working from home is so productive trope is a bit tired and it's not been my lived experience. And all I would say is that the data and I trust this coming out of the Institute at Stanford and Nick Bloom's research, what they're showing is that the fully remote productivity is going down hybrid where it's a mix seems to be holding steady. And so 
but but to the person who said that to you, every day there's another article that comes out that points it one way or another. Um, just to close the loop on that, because I, I I agree and I want to acknowledge, you know, for many of your listeners, hybrid, what's happening in that environment is not as relevant. It's a smaller portion because of the five sort of observations. The fourth was this idea that hybrid has eroded our connection to organizational culture and hurt productivity. Mm. But the answer isn't returning full time. In short, because I want us to get to our last question, it's just about new leadership skills and competencies. Mm -hmm. It's about more intention, and we've been talking about it already. It's being intentional with how you design your physical environment. It's being intentional about how you structure your virtual meetings. It's being intentional about why you bring people in. And all of that, you know, when you're when you're focused on your day job and this feels extra, it's just putting more pressure on leaders. So point four is hybrid work has eroded productivity, but the answer is not forcing everyone back into the office or back into work. Uh, it's not it, the answer is not to force everyone back in full time because there's a big push for that down here. Uh, back in the uh, down in the states, uh, the, yeah. there's a big big push to get everyone back in the building. Like like every like day there's every day there's another article about a, a CEO who's like get get your ass back in the office. Well, I think I think that tweet from Elon six months ago, eight months ago, which was absolutely he gave everyone freaking, permission. That was I mean that was he does have some zingers sometimes on Twitter, man. His tweet game is unreal. What <laughs> yes, did he, he say? Does. He's like, we are back in the office on Tuesday. If you don't like that, you can go pretend to work somewhere else. I was just like, it's so Elon. Um, now, the, 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 that's maybe not the most ex, uh, useful example to compare or contrast our businesses to, but it, it was a good moment. So then, okay, what what is a more balanced? Uh, what is a more balanced, high performing business leader? What are they doing? Is it three in, two out? Is it pick your days of the week? Is it you know yeah. we, organizing it so that you do this type of work from home, but then this other more collaborative meeting type work in the office? What's what do you do? You have any examples of, of businesses or leaders you think are really nailing it for the current climate? So uh, here's what's uh, what I think is is really interesting. And I'm, you know, I'm, there's five clients I'm thinking about right now in various sizes, all the way up to the National Institute of Health. Everyone is in experimentation mode right now. And so I think that just has to be like the, the precursor statement to all of this. It's like, there is no freaking answer. Right. And anybody who tells you they know, and even Nick Bloom out of Stanford is like, we're, we're tracking two or three days a week, but who, who knows? And, and, and here's the final element. And then I think we should move to number five that I'll, I'll say to this. All bets are off when we get a few more room, years removed into this because it's one thing for tenured leaders with a team who's been together for a long time and an established culture to go into a remote hybrid environment where you're, we're not together all the time, but we all know each other and we have deep relationships. Mm -hmm. We have trust, we have deep respect, but as that team turns over and you get new people in the organization or you get a 24 year old, mm -hmm. who a 23 year old, this is their first job. They are going to need more time around people and around the culture, or I think your culture starts to fray and I think productivity takes a hit. So looking at the numbers now, th that's a long answer to a short yeah. question of we don't know. And anybody who says they do is trying to probably sell you something. One of the things that I think we we do well at Breakthrough Academy, and I see a lot of our Breakthrough Academy members do in their business, is they go way out of their way. And and at, to the tune of tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, even for larger organizations, for that quality in person time, it's dinners, it's meals, it's trips, it's retreats, it's bringing in facilitators like you, Seth, to do work with them. They go way out of their way to do that, and it's a line item expense that they're willing to pay. And if you asked any of them who do it, they would they do it all day long. It's, it's a total no-brainer for them. They absolutely see the ROI. If you think that because you got someone a nice laptop and, and, and they got a Zoom login and uh, they loosely know how to do block scheduling, that they're going to be a productive and bought-in and values-aligned worker for you, you're absolutely kidding yourself. What's number totally five? Let's, let's move on to number totally five. Agree. Totally agree. Number five is... AI is not going to steal your job, but somebody who knows how to use it might. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Very buzzy. You're definitely twisting the knife here. This is a super <laughs> ongoing conversation. Uh, let me see if I can pick this apart. Okay. The AI isn't going to steal your job part. Yeah. What, to unpack that for us because a lot of people feel that it is. <sighs> so 
McKinsey released a report in July around the future of AI. And they broke down industry by industry how much it was going to affect. And to no surprise, there are are some industries more than others. Paralegals, the legal industry, certain documentation, white collar space, it is. In general, though, there was no apocalypse. And their primary point was what they're seeing is by 2030, AI has the ability to do about 30% of the daily tasks that you're currently doing that it could take over. Now, this is McKinsey's report, so I'm basing up. So the 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 interesting takeaway from that was, okay, if 30% of my time gets freed up, what does it free me up to do to bring more value to the organization, to my business, to my team? If 30% of, of my time of the paperwork, of dealing with, you know, uh, the minutia got taken away. Would I spend it with clients? Would I make extra phone calls? Like what would it allow me to do? And so the question for us to be thinking about is like, how do I use these tools to free me up to serve, solve, and support my clients or my people at their place of highest need? How do I lean into more of my humanity and the things that only I can do? Um, but so- I don't think anybody who's listening to this in, in, in our community needs to worry about AI stealing their job. I, this has been an ongoing thread. I've had this conversation probably four or five times with a bunch of different thought leaders in this space. And the overwhelming conclusion um, is that work where data is extremely centralized. I really like this term AI vulnerable versus AI resilient when you're looking at jobs nice. and job placements. I like what's that. A- yeah, that's great. What's AI vulnerable right now? Anything where the data is extremely centralized and easy to plug a, an agent onto and comb through and have the algorithm kind of compute stuff and and do what a a you know, this uh, one guy had a really great example of an x-ray technician. Like that is a right you know, right away is going to be extremely disrupted, paralegal, extremely disrupted, a whole bunch of stuff in the medical field. It's all about to happen. I'll tell you one place where the data is not centralized, the housing stock of North America. Mm. There is no data center (laughs) where they know where every pipe is and every shingle is and how all the foundations are poured. The only data center is re- physical reality itself, and so for that reason, I think I think that it's it's we've we've got a little more time than others. The other component that uh, this guy Jeff on on our podcast made the other week is the robotics are nowhere near where they would need to be for a plumber to feel truly uh-huh. like truly yeah, a, yeah. Uh, unsafe here. Now, talk a little bit more about the but someone who knows how to use it might. Part yeah, and what yeah, where yeah, does yeah. that what's what how does that tie in here? Are you are you just like pro start experimenting, start playing around with this? Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. Of like, I'm not worried about AI. What I'm worried about, I'll just use myself as an example, you know. But as a business owner, thinking about in your business, where is there any place where I might be able to leverage AI? I'll tell you where I I leverage AI, and maybe this will spark an idea. Like I've been leveraging AI as a as a co-pilot creative brainstorming partner, right? ChatGPT is not going to help, is not going to write my next book for me. It can't write like my core thesis. However, I can use it as a, as a thought starter. I will plug in like a paragraph of what I'm thinking about and I'll ask it to spit back out to me in someone else's language or with a different perspective. And what I have found, Benji, is like it will inspire me. Maybe it'll use a word in a sentence and I'm like, that's a freaking, that's a word that's not normally in my vocabulary and I love it. And all of a sudden now I'm crafting a whole new sentence that's way more powerful. That makes me more effective. Mm-hmm. That helps me. I, I don't really worry about competition, but from the standpoint of like whoever I'm competing with, I'm leveling up my game. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for your listeners in their business, it's like, is it a tool that helps you? I know some people who are using it to brainstorm creative sales pitches, mm-hmm. like a better hook. Right. Put in your hook and say, give me five very, very, like, that's a really simple example. Right. But like, or you got a door to door script. If any, anybody's out there knocking on doors, put in your script and say, give me five variations of this, but shorten it by half. Mm -hmm. See what it comes back with. Mm -hmm. That's an example of using it in a way that your competition probably isn't. I've had, I've had to kind of do, I wouldn't say a 180 on this, but maybe soften my stance on it. I mean, six months ago, I was like, 
dude, I hate, I hate this shit. <laughs> that was me six months. I'm like, I really hate this. I mean, okay, great. It might cure cancer. Cool. But like you're saying that there's about a 50% chance that it's going to end the world. Like, I've, you know, it sounds, right, this sounds right, cynical right, and right. insensitive to someone who's battling cancer right now, but I, I, I would take the cancer for the globe versus what you're saying this can do. So, you know, I've said, you know, I've kind of, I'm, I'm a broken record here. I have absolutely some ethical qualms with the blisteringly fast advancement of this. And I do think that there hopefully is going to be some level of regulation, some regular, some level of oversight. Uh, I think conversations about AI safety are very interesting and those are for podcasters way smarter than me. And I, I tune into those and kind of keep, keep on the pulse. But what I was going to say is walking back my statements, uh, my statements, softening my view on this literally in the last five weeks, We've done, I don't know, there's been four or five little tools that I've approved, we've approved sort of the subscriptions on. We just got, you know, we're playing around with Autopod for 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 podcast editing. We're playing around with mid-journey yep. for image generation for our graphic designer. Uh, we are playing around with GPT. Uh, we all have Loom. We have Canva, which is AI enabled. Uh, we actually just, I don't know when, if this is going to release before or after, but somewhere on your feed around this conversation, we just did one called uh, 10 useful AI tools your contracting business can actually use. And so I think that would be like a great place to start if this is something you want to start experimenting on. The one take, I this is a uh, Gary Vee's got so many good sound bites. Uh, he, uh, and I don't agree with him on, on everything, but this one he said that really stuck out. He goes, um, if you are at the very least not playing around with experimenting, getting in the sandbox and just having fun with the AI tools available now, you will be like the farmer who stuck their nose up at the tractor. And I was like, that's pretty nice. compelling. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. That's hard to. That's hard to that argue. That got you over the hump. That was. was that I was like, like oh, okay. soundbite five weeks ago. Yeah, yeah I was like, like Gary's that. pretty smart. Maybe I should at least dabble. Perfect. It's perfectly said, and that is you're right. Because I'm I'm not an AI expert. Certainly, it's an aspect of the future of work. And so, like you, I'm trying to pay attention. And and what I always find in my business is like. I'm an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm a, a, a co-founding partner of another business that's five years old, year over year, 100% growth. We've got 20 employees. Like I see what's happening there. And then in my own practice, it's just taking these things and applying it to myself. Like what am I doing? Am, am I experimenting with AI? Am I leaning into it or am I allowing my fear to prevent me from just dabbling. And so that's the takeaway, in my opinion, with our conversation here, because I know you got real experts that'll come on. But if one person's listening to this and decides after hearing us of like, I'm going to go pull up chat GPT and just like, start playing around a little bit. Success. Yeah. That's a win for us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Seth, we're almost out of time, but one one question I did yeah, want you to I did want you to just weigh in on uh what is your you grew up on a farm. You've worked in trades yourself. Now you kind of get to be this CEO whisperer, which I'm sure is a ton of fun. What is your parting wisdom for a growth-oriented contractor who lives in a sea, an environment of constantly changing chaos? Just any yeah. imparting words you can share. Yeah. So I, I do want to leave everybody with one thought because this is sort of the core thesis of the next book. So I, I've been fascinated by just the idea around what ultimately drives engagement and performance with people, right? If you're going to be a leader, you got to be fascinated with people. And as you know, you know, we've, there's, there's years, decades of research around what drives engagement. Gallup's been studying it forever, on and on. And yet we still find ourselves in a place where 70% of people are underengaged and disengaged, period. ADP's Research Institute put out some really interesting data at the end of 2021 pointing in an entirely new direction around what drives performance and engagement. And it, it, it came down to a single word, and it's a word that hasn't shown up in the research before. 50,000 people surveyed around the world answering this question. Every day I have the opportunity to do work that I'm good at and that I love. Love, right? This powerful word of love. Love is this is this energetic force of creation that I think many of us, we think, you know, just these lucky few people get to go do what they love. 
But that's not what this research is about and it's not what my message is. It's not about doing what you love. It's about doing what you do with love. Mm. It's about making everything you make with love. It's about building everything you build with love. What does that mean? To make something with love means to make the best you can make to the best of your ability out of love and devotion. And in doing so, we leave a part of ourselves in the things we create. Mm -hmm. To leave a part of yourself, I got, I get chills thinking about it because I'm thinking about it with the book I'm writing about it. Like, can I leave a part of myself in it? And so my parting message to everybody who's listening is the business that you're building, the people that you're, le that you're leading, can you leave a part of yourself in the work? Can you build your business? Can you make it with love? Because I believe the greatest businesses, the greatest products, the greatest music, everything exceptional that was ever made was made with love. You said it all, my friend. Uh, where can people follow along your journey, check out some of your work? I don't know if there's some social handles, a website. What's kind of your, your digital footprint here? Yeah, I, pre I appreciate the chance to share. So I'm, I'm easy to find just at Seth Madison, M-A-T-T-I-S-O-N across pretty much everything. Where I'm most active is Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, I'm going to try to up my, my TikTok game. But for <laughs> now, like if you want to see what I'm up to, <laughs> Instagram and LinkedIn is a good place. And as I'm, I'm in the throes of writing this new book, which is going to be titled Made With Love, um, The Secret Ingredient to Building a Better Business and a Better World. Uh, I'm going to start dripping this content out and I would love to hear from folks. Like I'm looking for examples, like tell me about a, a business or a product that you know is made with love that you love. What's an example of work you get to do that you love? So I'd love to get into a, a dialogue and a conversation with this incredible community. I'm looking forward to the book. I'm more looking forward to your TikTok dances. Uh, get those shoes out and, you know, exactly. <laughs> there, there you go. Thanks for being here, dude. This has been a ton of fun. We will absolutely be keeping tabs on you and let's try and do it again soon. I had a blast. Thanks for the opportunity, brother. Cheers. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of Contractor Evolution. Uh, if you've already subscribed to our channel, consider sharing this episode with another contractor who you think needs to hear it.